Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Diversity within religious communities is widely discussed and commonplace, and it has been a joy of my thinking life to feature the stories of religious life experiences, as well as all of the amazing researched work I've talked about on this show over the years. But on the other hand, something I haven't ever explicitly thought much about until now is the diverse experiences of the non-religious. Discussions of atheism often tend to be shoehorned into that of well-known contemporary figures, some of whom you might be listing in your mind right now, and this is something I've also been guilty of myself. However, a new volume of essays titled The Varieties of Atheism, Connecting Religion and Its Critics, edited by Dr. David Neuheiser and released by the University of Chicago Press, aims to revitalize dialogue about atheism. The collection has a fantastic variety of work, ranging from the genealogy of atheism, atheism in science, society, power, ethics, and much more. Dr. David Neuheiser appeared on this show elsewhere to discuss his other book, Hope in a Secular Age, which you can listen to another time if you are inclined. I hope you enjoy this conversation about the varieties of atheism featuring Dr. David Neuheiser. Dr. David Neuheiser, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure. It's wonderful to have you back, David. Um, I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience out there, however you see fit, because some people may have heard you on this show before, and some people may be hearing you for the first time. Yeah, thanks. I am a senior research fellow at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm a scholar of modern religious thought and political theology. A lot of my research is exploring the space between religious traditions and secular societies, thinking about the continued significance of religion in in a world uh, that is uh, not religious in the way that it used to be, maybe in, in uh, previous eras. Mm, fantastic. I love that description. Well, David, we're coming up on two years since you and I last spoke. 
you were here in December of 2020 to discuss your book, Hope in a Secular Age. And I loved that conversation. And many listeners commented on it as well and sent me some notes about how much they enjoyed it too. And But I know that since you were last uh, in conversation with me, a lot has happened in your own life in the last couple of years. Uh, and I wonder if you can just kind of give me a recap and catch me up to speed about what you've been up to the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'll... A lot has happened for all of us because mm -hmm. it, it, it's a weird coincidence. I was thinking about this the other day. We talked in December 2020, as you say, and my book uh, had had begun to um, circulate uh, in January that year, and and that was uh, that was exactly the time I think that COVID began to spread, mm -hmm. and that sort of changed everything for for all of us in a way. So here in Melbourne, we had a few really long lockdowns that were uh, more more strict than most places experienced. And so since you and I last talked, I spent a lot of time inside, you know, trying to adjust to a more solitary life. And uh, and then a few months after we talked in in uh, March last year, I uh, I was riding my bike near my house as I often do. And I got hit by a car. I was in a, a high speed bike accident. And at first I thought I was just a bit banged up. My, my ribs were sore. My knees hurt. I had a scrape on my elbow, but after about a week, my head began to hurt and basically it hasn't stopped. So I, uh, was diagnosed with a concussion, which has since developed into post-concussion syndrome, which I've learned 10 to 20% of people who suffer from a concussion have symptoms that continue uh, a year or more after the event of their injury. And that's that's really changed my life in a big way. I wasn't able to work for almost a year, and I've been sort of slowly getting back into it. In addition to having a constant headache, I experienced some cognitive impairment, which has, has sort of gradually improved um, brain fog and you know, some difficulties, difficulties remembering. Now I feel like I've come to the point largely because I've benefited from really outstanding care through Australia's public health system. Mm. I think now I'm maybe 95% of myself and improving all the time. So I feel like I'm, I'm getting back to where I was before. But I've I've sort of experienced a kind of vulnerability that I never have before, and I found myself relying on the care and support of other people, which I I always did. I sort of knew I, you know, I read feminist theorists like Judith Butler who talk about uh, the fact that all of us depend upon other people, even if we're not aware of it. You know, we're we're each of us knit within relations of interdependence, these networks that, uh, that support us. But a lot of the time that, that support that other people give us is invisible. But for me, suddenly there were a lot of things I weren't able to do. And so, uh, you know, I relied on friends to bring me food, uh, cause figuring out what was for dinner was, was really hard. And, uh, you know, I've been relying, relying on people to give me companionship because apart from, the ways in which COVID has been really exhausting and weird. I felt like I just wasn't myself for a long time. I felt cut off from the, from the communities and conversations I care about. And 
now that I'm getting back to um, my work and, you know, I'm able to, I'm able to sort of reconnect. I, yeah, I feel like things look different to me now. I have a different sense of the importance of solidarity. Um, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's politicized me in a way. I've become more involved in the work of my union. It's made me think differently about the differential harms that COVID has caused, the way in which vulnerable communities have been affected by the by the pandemic. Um, and yeah, so I'm still sort of working through what that will mean for my work in the long term. But that's a that's a long answer to a quick question. A lot's happened. Yeah, I love it though. Did um did this new book that we're going to discuss was this kind of like the first thing that you dove back into whenever you kind of resumed um you know like a like a professional life again? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the work had been done before. I mean, you know, a book like this, a collection, given that it's the work of many hands, you know, it takes a long time to to um, bring it to fruition. But the it, it is true that my introduction to the piece was the first thing that I sort of got back to. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's talk about this collection. It's called The Varieties of Atheism, Connecting Religion and Its Critics. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the the origin of how this idea came to be and you know how the collection of authors came into the picture and kind of how it all took shape. Tell me the backstory behind this book. So let me just start by talking about the most immediate context, which is that uh, there was a conference that uh, was held in, I think, 2018, where I had the chance to bring together around 20 of my favorite scholars of religion and, and uh, secularity to come together to talk about atheism and to try to sort of uh, find a new conversation to figure out what scholars of religion have to say. Uh, and that that uh, conference was one of the culminating events in a larger project that I led from 2016 to 2019 on the topic of atheism. And so with a group of collaborators, I had the chance to sort of think for a while about what's at stake in the issue around atheism. There seems, seems to be a lot of energy around it. It's, it's one of the ways in which conversations around religion and non-religion echo in the public sphere. And, uh, and I guess maybe to put the point more directly, when scholars of religion write about secularity, it's kind of abstract. It refers to a sort of social, social phenomena. But atheism is an identity that people sometimes claim for themselves. It matters for their lives and the way that they think about who they are and how they live. And so we wanted to sort of think about what's, what's going on there. And in particular, uh, what sort of conversations could we stage between people who are religious and people who aren't? What are the what are the important tensions? What are the lines of connection? So that's sort of concretely where the where the collection came from. It sort of is the the fruit of that extended conversation. There's also, I think, a, a sort of longer story to tell, which is just that um, I, I've been thinking about atheism myself for a, for a long time. I mean, I I grew up in California in a suburb and I I was raised in a in a religious community you know the people most of the people that I knew when I was young were Christian and so atheism was kind of an object of distant fascination you know mm. it was uh 
it was something that people would talk about often with a kind of anxiety. And <laughs> then when I went to college, I actually met some atheists, like people who, who uh, acknowledged they were out as atheists. And, and then I began to actually read the work of atheists like Nietzsche and Feuerbach and Camus and Derrida. And as I began to develop as a scholar of religion and especially my graduate work, I found that these sort of classic atheist texts were the thing that helped me to, to make sense of medieval religious thought. So I, I studied, um, you know, Christian theology from the, you know, fifth century through the, you know, later middle ages, early modern period. And I found that, that atheists helped me to figure out what I thought was going on there. And then conversely, when I began to study, especially Derrida's work more close, closely, but also Camus and, and the others, I, I found that to understand what was going on in those atheist texts, it was, it was really important to have a background in the study of religion. And so I guess that sensibility that, that, um, that there's something like really exciting and important about this conversation around atheism, that for me is sort of where the motivation for the collection came from. Wonderful. Well, the, the piece that you did write in, in the book, the great introduction that you mentioned, has a fantastic genealogy of atheism. And you already mentioned a couple of the names that you talk about throughout the, the section as well. But, you know, I kind of want to go through that, that, that section because I, I don't really think that a lot of this has ever come up on this show, despite the fact that I've been at this for hundreds of episodes at this point. And it's kind of like a, a, a blind spot, if you will, on the, on the catalog of the show. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering if you can, if we can go through some of the major concepts and terms, uh, just as kind of a, a nice little primer since it's never been done here. So I'm wondering if we can begin by uh, if I can ask you, like, what is your biggest takeaway on the available academic research out there that compares, like, between secularization and atheism? Is there, like, is this kind of a, a very well, um, like, examined field, or is this kind of still a little bit new? I think this collection does something that's new in an important respect, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited that it's coming out. So. There's a lot of discussion among scholars of religion uh, of secularization as a social phenomenon. And as I've said, there's a lot of discussion among philosophers, but also in the public sphere of atheism as an identity. But scholars of religion haven't written a ton about atheism. So the conversation around secularization uh, tends to sort of focus on the sort of history of social trends, social dynamics. And then on the other hand, the philosophical conversation, for reasons I'll describe, tends to take an a definition of atheism that I think is ahistorical, somewhat constrained, flattens its, its uh, complexity, diversity. There, are, there is an emerging literature by sociologists who study religion like Lois Lee or Hannah Scheidt, or others, Jerome Baggett, who have begun to study atheism from a sociological perspective to sort of give us a, a more textured sense of what the experience of people living now who call themselves atheism, like what's the range of experiences, like what are the practices, 
associated with them. But one of the things this collection tries to do is to situate the conversation around atheism that's so so vibrant and vigorous, to situate it in a broader historical context. Because one of the things that gets lost is the fact that atheism is more than one thing. So mm-hmm. I think uh, when people hear the term atheism, they tend to think of the atheists that are most prominent, like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. But those people tend to tend to uh, suggest that atheism just means a kind of unbelief. Mm-hmm. But this collection unpacks from a range of perspectives that um, atheism looks differently at different times and different places. And so w- one of the things, the sort of key point, the key takeaway, I think, of the collection, and it's in the title, is that there are varieties of atheism. And that yeah. that, ti- that title is a, a nod to this classic book by William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh, so James, in this classic text for religious studies, t- talks about the sort of vibrancy of religious experience, which he thinks is uh, has a sort of depth and energy that goes beyond mere belief. And one of the things we're trying to show in the collection is that the same is true of atheism, that atheism has this sort of uh, vividness and complexity and energy precisely because it has this, yeah, glimmering variety. Mm. Fascinating. Um, do you know if there's like a historical etymology behind the word atheism itself? Is there like a way that we can trace this word back throughout time to see when it was used and how it's changed over time? Yeah. So I think that the the way that we get the term atheist, I think, uh, underlines the this key point about the the plurality, the variety of of atheism. So the the word atheist that we have in English and other European languages t- derives from the Greek term atheos, which takes the word for God, theos, and applies a, a prefix that uh, alpha, the A, at the beginning, which has a sort of privative or negative function. So it's basically negating the word God. And already that that implies that what it means to be atheos will depend in a really important respect on what God you have in mind. Mm-hmm. So it, al- already what atheism means is in this sort of relationship of, of uh, tension with particular religious traditions, particular understanding of God. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a complex, uh, <laughs> complex trajectory by which we get from the sort of ancient Greek use of atheos. Um, so for instance, Socrates was famously accused of being uh, atheos by his uh, by his opponents in ancient Athos, Ath- Athens, because they said he didn't believe in the gods of the state. Uh, but interestingly, the the complaint was was not that he didn't believe in any gods. These people attacking Socrates and who were eventually responsible for his execution, they complained that he had new divinities of his own. So uh, this example shows that what it meant to be atheos in ancient Greece wasn't a sort of godlessness as such, but it was the the rejection of, of particular gods. It has this sort of particular relationship with particular religious traditions. Mm. The, the history of atheist as an accusation within Christianity sects was also something that really 
captured my attention. Is there a way that you can like kind of tease out some history there of like what it was like to be within Christianity, but to like hurl that as like, you know, an accusatory thing about how another sect is like, you know, less than or uh, illegitimate by hurling this term? Yeah, that's one of the funny things that uh, I think is is uh, sort of startling when you when you take a modern understanding of atheism and then look at uh, ancient or medieval uses of the term, because as the example of Socrates suggests, the issue in ancient Athens wasn't centrally about belief. The, the complaint against Socrates was about piety. Mm. They, they, his Socrates' opponents were worried that he was undermining particular religious practices that they thought were important. And this understanding that what it meant to be atheos has to do with um, with practice and with morality more than with belief alone. This is reflected as the term gets taken up uh, in in the sort of early Christian period and then in medieval Europe. So one of the things that uh, is especially striking is that ancient Romans, when Christians uh, began to circulate in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries, ancient Romans actually accused Christians of being atheos, not because they didn't have any gods. Again, it wasn't about the belief that there isn't a god, but ancient Romans thought that Christians were atheists in the sense because they were undermining Roman practices of piety. And in, in a similar way, as you've suggested, Christians actually accused each other of impiety. So in, in the uh, early modern period, when the Protestant Reformation was spreading around Europe, there was a lot of intra-Christian conflicts So Protestants and Catholics were try trying to score points against each other in any way that they could. And one of the ways that they did this was to accuse each other of atheism. So uh, uh, Francois Garras is, is one um, early modern commentator, and he actually called Protestant theologians like John Calvin and modern Luther, Martin Luther, atheist. Garas calls Luther a perfect atheist, which is really funny because Luther is taken as uh, exemplary of theism by a lot of people. He's, you know, he's a Protestant Christian. He believes in the Christian God, but for, for a Christian that has a different theology in this period, uh, Garas worried that someone like Calvin or Luther undermined the, the sort of piety that he himself was committed to. And so uh, calling Lutheran Calvin atheist was a way to name name that uh, difference, to name that conflict. Because it was a, god, a godlessness that was mainly about morality and about uh, uh, pious practice, observance mm -hmm. more than belief alone. You know, um, just just as a side note, one of my favorite, one of my students' favorite texts to read in class is the Euthyphro Dilemma by Plato. And I'm wondering, have you ever like taught that or anything before? Because it is a really good time to go through the piety, impiety accusations of Socrates. It's always such a good time with students. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I haven't had the chance to do that for a while. But um, I mean, one of the things I love about about Plato is is the way in which he he stages thinking as a drama in in dialogues like the the Euthyphro. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It, it's really I, fun. I, be yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I mean, I feel like that's in keeping with the in with the story that I've been telling because yeah, 
Platonism isn't just about making particular claims about the world. It's not an abstracted system. It's something that has a has a kind of life in in the in the. It's almost like a play that that Plato stages in the Euthyphro and other other dialogues. Oh, absolutely! And I would have students read it aloud in groups, Beautiful. and then a, yeah, and then another thing that I did was that was one of the ways that this podcast even started was it was like a classroom project and a co-teacher of mine and I performed it on a recording. So if you go way back to the beginning of this podcast, I think it's like episode like four or five or something like that. It's me and another teacher from my old school district reading the parts uh, in the dialogue. And it's it's one of the first things I ever did in podcast form was do a performance of that exact dialogue. It was pretty fun. I love that. I'm, maybe I'll have to go back and check that out. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, I love a lot of contemporary philosophy, as I've said. Um, you know, I love Nietzsche, Derrida, Camus, others. But uh, I do feel like sometimes philosophy, also religious studies today, kind of misses that uh, that drama. I feel like maybe we need new genres yeah, yeah. Well, let's move into the modern day a little bit. We've been talking about some old stuff that's in the book. Let's talk about some newer stuff. I'm wondering how atheism moves from being an accusation between groups to becoming the self-identified label that is chosen that we are more familiar with today, where people say what they are. I am an atheist. How does it come to become a self-identified and chosen label? Yeah, it's a really important pivot. So in in early modern, so, so sorry to take a step back, as I've said, in the in medieval Europe and in the early modern period, atheism atheism was mainly an accusation. It was associated with immorality. But then in early modern France, philosophers like uh, Diderot began to claim that they were atheists, which which in the context of the earlier understanding would have seemed quite uh, quite strange, and historians have have given different accounts of how how we get to this point. Some some people argue that atheism uh, is a sort of unbelief. They define it as as unbelief in um, the existence of a god or gods that was hidden. So there's this idea that atheism was suppressed and. And that it only sort of in the early modern in the early modern period in places like France, maybe urban centers in particular, becomes something that people can acknowledge. People can be out as as atheists. But I I think it's important to note that there's a conceptual shift in what atheism actually means. So atheism, as I've described before the early modern period, means something different than than what we tend to think about it today when we understand atheism as an uh, avowed identity that can name uh, a way of living with integrity in the world. And so some some historians like Alec Reimer or Peter Harrison have, have done really interesting work on on this. They argue that this shift in in the significance of of atheism as a as a concept actually owes in large part to dynamics that are internal to Christianity. It's sort of the expression of an intra-Christian debate. In a way, so atheism, as we know it today, is is wrapped up in the emergence of of science in the modern sense. And there's a complicated story to tell about how we get 
modern science. Uh, it, it is also, I think, invented uh, in an important respect. What science means shifts at the same time. And it was, it was in, the, in this early modern period, in my understanding, that uh, partly because of these, uh, this new understanding of science that was developing, there was a new understanding of, of what it meant to, uh, to believe in or worship God. So some, some Christians in the early modern period, in order to try to bolster their form of Christianity, especially when arguing against other forms of Christians, some Christian theologians tried to argue that God was a kind, was a kind of empirical hypothesis that, that you could show that, uh, that their understanding of God was warranted by virtue of what the world was like. They sort of tried to enlist this, this new understanding of science that was emerging on behalf of, um, on behalf of their form of theology, because there was, as I've said, there was this debate that Christians were arguing against each other about how God should be understood. But what this did was it rendered belief in God really fragile because it, it, it sort of made it subject to science in a way it depended on it mm. and then at a certain point when people realized that science could do without god and that actually the evidence uh empirical evidence for god was at the very least questionable uh that sort of led this momentum led people to to sort of dispense with it as a hypothesis but the crucial thing is that this understanding of god as a sort of quasi scientific hypothesis that was um, you know, God as a sort of factor in the in the empirical world, that itself was a was a modern invent, innovation that that uh, medieval and ancient uh, Christians and other traditions they they wouldn't have understood their theology in that way. So it was partly this sort of uh, evolution of Christian theology led to this evolution in um, you know like uh, how a person could deny God with with integrity. There's also something to say about the sort of um, affective, emotional, and moral sensibilities that were developing at the same time. So Alec Ryrie describes really beautifully the anxiety that some Protestant Christians especially were feeling when, as their doctrinal cert certainties were being eroded, as this Christian, intra-Christian conflict was really intense, that, that made Christians conscious that a lot of their doctrinal views were contestable. And a lot of the criticisms that Christians were leveraging against each other were actually moral in question, as I've, as I've described. And so, according to Ryrie, the, the atheism of, of later atheists like, I don't know, Ludwig Feuerbach is a famous uh, early atheist who, who went on to be super influential on Karl Marx and others. You can see someone like Feuerbach as a sort of intensification of this this Protestant moral anxiety about uh, a form of Christian theology that would be, um, yeah, more morally suspect or idolatrous in some sense, and yeah. So I mean, Feuerbach himself uh, <laughs> says that uh, atheism is the the secret of of Christianity, and um, and so as as I've as I try to describe in the in this piece. Um, I think one of the reasons that atheism becomes something that people like Diderot can acknowledge as an identity is first because Christians are fighting with each other 
and and that itself unsettles the um, uh, unsettles the scene, allows something new to emerge. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off nice well you know you've got a one of my favorite things about this chapter that you did is there's you've gotten me to realize my own uh lack of variety for lack of a better word um in in my reading within this field and which is ironic because of the title of the book but you know there's names in here that i've never heard like anthony flew richard swinburne uh, others that I've heard but not read a whole lot, like Bertrand Russell. And I, I just realized that like I've spent so much time focusing on uh, scholarship that is like religious in nature or like real like religious studies um within traditions, not atheism, that I've like overlooked this wealth of of stuff out there that I feel is, you know, maybe I find myself moving a little bit more towards and I need to re-examine. Uh, in the future for this show to make this topic a little more widely discussed. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the scholars that you cite in the chapter, like some people that were like, they're like super instrumental for you and uh, crucial in your own, you know, academic journey within this field. Like there's a whole, a whole wide range of scholars in here that whose names are brand new to me. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me about some of your most influential. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate what uh, what you just said, because I think what you've described is the effect that I want the book to have, because as you say, in the field of religious studies, there's a lot of work that's organized around religious traditions, the sort mm. of, um, especially the, um, what gets called world religions. And one of the things that I've thought for a while is that uh, atheism as an identity is just as vibrant and and vigorous and interesting as those traditions it doesn't have it's not usually understood as a tradition in the same sense it doesn't have i think you can think of some religious traditions uh like i don't know catholicism might be the it's the example that comes most clearly to my mind which has a kind of bureaucracy that defines or attempts to define the limits of what catholicism means and so it's easier to see that as a sort of bounded tradition that tells a story about its own history. And something similar is true in different ways of different traditions in Islam and Hinduism, Buddhism, and uh, you know everything else, Sikhism. Um, but I think atheism is also a tradition and it has that same kind of complexity. It has a, a dimension where it's, uh, it's practiced in people's lives. It's also more than just a set of sort of uh, doctrines or beliefs. It involves 
sort of a rich emotional life. It involves particular practices. So the scholars that you mentioned, many of them are the people who have written explicitly about atheism, especially philosophers like you mentioned Bertrand Russell, Anthony Flew, Richard Swinburne, Alvin Plantinga. There's this philosophical discussion of atheism that I think is generally pretty thin, actually, because it tends to assume that atheism is just about belief. And one of the things that I think this collection tries to do is to take inspiration from scholars of religion like Talal Assad. So Assad, as many of your listeners will know, has done really important work on how the concept of religion was invented in early modern Europe alongside a new conception of the state as something that's secular. And one of the things that I think Assad and others like him in the study of religion have brought to light is that there are concepts like religion and secularity that we tend to take for granted. But if we if we look at their genealogy, if we look at their history, we we can see that they they sort of cover over momentous shifts. And if we attend to those shifts, we see that there's a lot of complexity there. There's a great variety embedded in that history. And and that variety is not only not only conceptual. This is a sort of key insight that Assad and scholars of religion like Robert Orsi and others have made is that, you know, religion's not just about belief, but uh, yeah, as, as I've said, I think atheism isn't either. And so I think, uh, I think there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Well, those are the ones I haven't heard of, but I have heard of others and you brought these guys up earlier, but the new atheist movement from that was popularized about 15 years ago at this point, uh, and I'm wondering if you have specific uh, relationships or connection in your own life to the work of Dan Dennett and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, because, you know, those those four figures, I, I will uh, admit, were fairly important for me at a certain time in my uh, in my thinking journey. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. They were important for me too. I mean, I I talked a bit about uh, how I sort of encountered atheism as a sort of living, vibrant phenomenon when I was uh, when I was in college, and uh, especially Hitchens. I think you know he's a really really vivid writer. He's a great stylist, and he sort of makes these questions come alive. I think Daniel Dennett has written some really interesting, really thoughtful things about atheism, and uh, you know, of course. Uh, Dawkins has opened some really interesting conversations. One of the things that I appreciate about their work is they've sort of brought the conversation around atheism in into the public sphere in a way that I think is really important so that it's not just something that philosophers argue about, but they really have a kind of political program um, because uh, they, I think it's something that often gets overlooked given that they they sort of focus on atheism as a form of unbelief but they they've tried to create spaces where atheist communities can spring up they're especially concerned with the harmful moral effects that that certain forms of religious practice can um can have on people's lives and i i i think that spoke to me when i was you know when i was a student because i had sort of experienced that in a way you know when i was younger that fundamentalist forms of of religion I know in my own life you know it could be really damaging for people 
One of the things I've realized, though, is I began to read more classic atheists like Nietzsche and Feuerbach and others, is that atheism, I think, is a lot more interesting and a lot more complicated than people like, I guess, especially Dawkins and Harris suggest, because for all their virtues and for all the good that they've done, I think, in some contexts, I think they, they tend to present atheism and religion as if they're simply opposed. Atheism is just one thing, unbelief. Uh, that stands against religion, which they almost always assume to be fundamentalist. And as I began to study the history of religious thought more carefully, I realized that religious traditions and Christianity, which is my own area of expertise, is enormously diverse. There's not just one form of Christianity. Religion is not just one thing. And so to criticize religion as such I think it's just a bit too simplistic. The terms in which they do it are too simple. So I think they, I've come to see them as opening a really important conversation. But I guess one of the things that this book is trying to do is to sort of take the next step to sort of say, given that, given that partly through the work of, of the new atheists, atheism is something that uh, people, is an identity that people claim is their own. It's important for people's lives. How can we try to explore the, the the complex relationship between particular forms of atheism and particular religious traditions? You know, you have an organizational structure for the book, which is really interesting. You have it divided into three sections, and I want to know a little bit more about the layout, because you have it in an Einstein section, a Nietzsche section, and a Hume section in reverse order of their chrono chronological existence as people in the world. And I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, I, I'm glad you picked up on that. So the first of the three sections in the book is, I guess, more focused on the on the history of atheism using these three key examples. And I, I thought it would be useful to start with Einstein. So Mary Jane Rubenstein has written a really, really beautiful chapter on Albert Einstein and the way in which he was often said to be an atheist, but actually he has this sort of complicated, perhaps pantheism, which some people say counts as atheism, but some people don't. And it's partly because, as I, as I mentioned, atheism, the story of atheism, as we know it today, is all wrapped up in the, the emergence of science in the modern sense. And yeah, Einstein's a really, really great example of, of the way in which, uh, science and atheism have a complicated relationship and MJ's piece I think brings that out uh you know in a way that's really really exciting and so I sort of thought you know where people I imagine people to be coming in with the piece starting with Einstein like meets people where they're at and then Nietzsche's the next step Dennis Turner writes a um a piece on Nietzsche and focusing in particular on on the way in which Nietzsche's atheism in, in Turner's account goes deeper in a way than the atheism of people like Richard Dawkins and uh, Sam Harris, because according to Turner, Nietzsche argues that any consistent atheism will have to be politically transformative. Turner argues that people like Dawkins and uh, Hitchens and Dennett, they, they act as if you can just change belief in in God, you know, just stop believing in God and then leave the organization of society more or less the same. And Turner shows, I think, that for Nietzsche, atheism 
changes things on a on a sort of deeper ethical and political level. And and so then I sort of thought as a next step, it made would make sense to sort of step back in time to David Hume, who in the 18th century is one of these, he's not the earliest atheist, but he's one of one of the people who is often taken as one of the earliest examples of people who was really critiquing religion in a in a way that's more overt. And Andre Willis writes a chapter that I think brings out the brings out the political stakes of Hume's atheism uh, by bringing it into conversation with the uh, uh, pragmatist philosophy of of a uh, uh, modern atheist Richard Rorty. And so the idea is that in that first section to sort of sketch the history of atheism as a modern phenomenon, sort of take people back, beginning where they are with Einstein, through Nietzsche to Hume. Uh, to give people an expanded sense of what atheism has meant. Wonderful. Well, you know, the layout of that was, I, I got a big kick out of realizing that I was like, wait a minute, this is in reverse chronological order of when these people actually lived. And I just found that to be extremely fun. So I'm uh, I'm glad for that description. And there's an author or a chapter that you didn't mention just now, and that's with a uh, theologian, Susanna Ticciotti. And, um, she takes a theological approach and like in the chapter you write about how she purposefully engages with atheists to enhance her own theology. And I thought that that was such a wonderful inclusion. And I'm wondering if you can just comment quickly on what you thought about that particular inclusion, because I thought that was such a nice additional touch to include a person who uses conversation with atheists purposefully engages in those dialogues to enhance her own work. Yeah, I mean, Susanna Ticciotti's piece, I think, is great. She, as you say, she's a Christian theologian. So I should say that the the chapters are written by people who represent a range of perspectives. Everyone is situated in the study of religion or theology in some way. Some of the authors, as I've said, take a more historical approach. Some of them are more critical of religion, and often Christianity is more or less the focus Um and some of them, like like Susanna, she and her piece is trying to think about how Christians can do their theology better. And one of the things, so the subtitle of the book is Connecting Religion and Its Critics. And one of the things that uh, we try to do is to show that taking a more complex, variegated understanding of, of atheism opens the possibility for a conversation between people who are religious and people who aren't that's more more interesting than than the sort of polemic uh, where atheists are sort of against people who are religious, always and as such. And the thing that Susanna does in her piece is that she actually criticizes a lot of a lot of the Christian theologians who have written on atheism, because in her view, they've tried to sort of score points, maybe in a similar way as as atheists like uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris. And she thinks that that reading atheists seriously is is an opportunity to, to learn how to do Christian theology better. So that's what she that's what she does, especially by tuning into the the moral concerns that in her reading drive the work of atheists like Dawkins and Harris. So she she's really sensitive to the way in which they're worried about, for instance, as I've said, the effects on children that religion can have. And she says that, you know, that that moral concern is something that people who are religious can also share. And so she tries to offer an understanding of how Christian Christian theology should understand itself mm. uh, as, as being motivated by, by, yeah, by a similar set of concerns that can actually take 
the concerns of these atheists into into account. Wonderful. Well, there's another chapter, the closing chapter of the book is called The Drama of Atheism, which, again, I loved. And I'm wondering uh, if you can comment on, uh, like, in atheism in general, in 2022, going into 2023, what is dramatic about atheism, kind of in your view? Yeah, so the the chapter you mentioned is by Constance Fury, who's really one of my favorite scholars in the study of religion. And it's a really beautiful coda to the collection. It's a, um, you know, vibrant afterward that talks about her own early encounter with atheism, which was through a book by the theologian Henri de Lubac. Uh, he wrote a book, The Drama of Atheist Humanism. And the thing that that her collection captures is that I think much is the way I've tried to describe atheism has a kind of energy to it. It's 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 not just uh, something that exists in words. It's not just about belief, but it's it's something that people people live in a way that is full blooded with all of the with all of the emotion that people um, that people take into the into the things that most matter to them and i guess that's one of the things that i i'm excited about i mean i uh over the last years uh sort of after the work on this collection has been done i've had the chance to to um co-direct uh, a project on uh art and uh unbelief which is thinking about the way in which art practices can uh, can show that that there might be uh, might form another form of point point of contact between people who aren't religious at all and people who who are thinking about ritual and art um, together. And I just I just find it so exciting to explore this space, this sort of gray, um, you know, complex space between particular re- religious traditions and particular um, forms of atheism. And uh, I think that's where the drama, for me, that's where the drama, the energy is, forging conversations of this kind. Wonderful. Well, David, what is next for you? Where is your work taking you in the next couple of years before you and I, were, or before our paths may cross again? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I feel like the introduction that I gave to this conversation means that I probably shouldn't predict what's going to happen because it's going to surprise me. And that's one of the things, as I said, you know, I, I'm dealing with this new chronic health condition because of my bike accident. And that's really shifted my understanding of myself and my relationship to others. And it's really sensitized me, I think, to, um, yeah, political questions around our interdependence and about the importance of solidarity, which I think is one of the reasons why I actually care about questions like this, uh, you know, trying to help communities religious and non-religious communities find ways to connect, find ways to talk to each other, because I think those um, forms of understanding and solidarity are really, really important, especially with the crises that we're dealing with. So I've been writing a bit on the ongoing pandemic, and in relation to that, I've been thinking about right-wing populism. I think both of those are emergencies that, that that really call us to come together, to work together, to, uh, yeah, I guess to find, to find a sort of kind of care for each other that's beyond, beyond simple self-interest. And, um, yeah, I think that, 
that's where my thinking will go. I'm working on a collection that's sort of extending this work on atheism that's coming out of this project on art and ritual practice that I mentioned. I I think uh, hopefully in the next year or two, I'll have written my next book on um, political theology and amazement, thinking about uh, the experience of surprise um, as, as a politically powerful um, resource. But with all of that in mind, I think the thing that I really want to do is to, to figure out how I can, in some small way, help to address the emergencies that I think we're living through in relation to our, um, you know, public health, political life at the moment. Wonderful. Well, Dr. David Neuheiser, do you have any ways that people can get in touch or follow your work or things that you would encourage that they follow if they would like to know more about what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, I, I love hearing from people. <laughs> the, the last couple of years, because of because of COVID and because of my accident, have been kind of isolating. And genuinely, I just love hearing from people when they reach out. Uh, so, um, you know, like if you found my work helpful, I, you know, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you can see what I'm doing, doing there. Um, I've got a personal website where I, you know, update publications as they come out or, uh, interviews like this one, but, um, mostly I'm just excited to connect with people who are thinking about similar things, you know, the sort of questions that I mentioned, because my own experience is that thinking together is really important. And, uh, yeah, as, as ever, but now more than ever solidarity is our only hope. So. I'm, well, thank uh, you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I've had a, a real blast and I love to read in this new book and I really hope that people check it out because I personally loved it. And it got me thinking about, you know, a lot of new things that I can examine on this show in the future and 250 plus episodes in finding new ground to, uh, to tread is actually quite a thrill. So thank you so much for, uh, for providing something that took me in a new direction because it, it means a lot to me. Super fun, Greg. Thank you so much. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.